0: Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Well, we're not going to get into a very deep uh, study of the text again this morning of Romans 13. We've already spent three weeks going through verses 1 through 7. Today we'll touch a little bit on verse 7, but only an application is, I believe verse 7 is primarily just that, application to what we have already learned. Some highlights to what we've already learned in Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, is that everyone, literally every soul, ought to submit to governing authorities since they are instituted or ordained or established by God. And And the logic there is very clear. What God ordains, what He established, establishes, what He institutes, is an imperative for everybody to submit to. And that's very clear. God is that final authority, and all authority, Paul argued, derives from Him. Therefore, government authority derives from God. They receive their authority from God to govern. Christians who are not to be conformed to this world, therefore, from chapter 12, verse 2, are bound by duty to submit to governments, earthly governments, he means. The text implies also that the duty that governments have is to carry out good for those who do good and terror for those who do evil. Verses 3 and 4 say do what is good and you will receive his approval. That is governmental ruler's approval, for he is God's servant for your good. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is God's servant. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And then we consider that this should be an encouragement for us as believers. God has given us his Holy Spirit in order for us to do good in this world, to live according to the fruits. And in and in fact bear the fruits of the Spirit, against which there is no law. Against, and in the, in the category of Paul's teaching from chapter 12, the end of chapter 12, and ongoing in chapter 13, verses 8 through the end of the chapter, we're going to be learning more about our moral o- uh, obligation in this world. And if Christians are obeying God and even being led by the Spirit, it should encourage us that God has ordained government to operate in such a way that they should support, the government should support us when we do what God has called us to do in this life. God's purpose for government also implies limitations to it. There is in this text implied limitation, namely that it's to bear the sword of terror to those who do wrong and for good to those who do good. In other words, the primary responsibility that Paul lays out for government under God that God has given them the authority to carry out is the authority of judging those who do wrong and praising those who do good. That's a very limited scope for government. He doesn't lay out here that government should be in every aspect of retail and industry in every aspect of our lives, in in micromanaging every aspect of the lives of its citizens. Now, that's not something that Paul explicitly, one way or the other, details, but here, implicitly, there's limitations on government, which is historically why Christians have pursued to establish limited government. And it also harkens back to what we learned in chapter 12. As much as lies within you as a citizen, as a person in this world, live peaceably with all. You see, if the gospel makes a change in us, as it will, if it's truly in us, if Christ is in us, we're not servants or slaves of sin, we're servants and slaves of righteousness, then we will be good citizens. And you won't have to have a government packed on top of each other in setting regulations, and broadening its scope of everything that it, it uh, bears its sword, the right of the sword over, you see. So the way that the gospel is to be worked out in the world is also concurrent with the limited scope of government. And I said last week, when morality fails in any country, in any people, when people cease to be loving towards their neighbor, Governments will increase their grip and their restraint of freedoms, and I believe we're going to be seeing that much more in our own country. Since God has ordained government, and I, we've already seen it, in fact, since God has ordained government and indeed they rule in service to God, therefore, and we looked last, lastly last week, we are to pay our taxes. What are, what are called tributes, customs, that has to do with revenue, also with levies and such things like that, that enable them, that is, God's servants to carry out their calling, God's servants in government. Now, with those things underneath us, just as a, by way of just reintroducing us into these texts, I know we go slowly, perhaps too slowly through them, I just want to look this morning primarily at application. How do we apply What Paul has taught us, these are really important questions these days. Has anybody in the last year or so questioned their responsibility to live towards our government? How we do that? Anybody? (laughs) Who hasn't? Right? Who hasn't really worked through, as a Christian, how am I supposed to live in relationship to the government? So the first question I have from what we've learned is, are citizens ever right to resist governments. And the first and foundational answer to that, I'd like to bring your attention to Acts chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. If we can come to an answer from scripture directly, that's the best way. If we have to derive it from theology and doctrine, that's also proper. Let's go to Acts four eighteen. In fact, in chapter 4 and 5 of Acts, we see the answer to this question, the first answer. Now, this is the governing authority to Jewish people. This is the Sanhedrin, this council that's convened, these authorities that uh, preside over the Jewish people, even as they are being presided over as a nation by Rome. But the Sanhedrin calls the apostles together, and they're going to tell them, charged them, something here in verse 18. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Well, that's a very clear charge by these governing authorities. And yes, they had authority over the people of Israel. But Peter and John answered them, And here's what they said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you or rather that to God, you listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. You see there? You want us to listen to you or to God? What's right? You're men of God. You say what's right. He just leaves that on in their, in their laps. For we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. And after reciting in prayer the second psalm as being fulfilled in what God ordained to transpire in Jerusalem at the time of Christ's crucifixion, by governing rulers, at the hands of governing rulers, this specific request is found again in verse 29 of chapter 4, was made to God and then answered by God. It's very important. And now, Lord, look upon their threats, that is, the threats of the synagogue, these ruling authorities and grant to your servants to continue to speak the word with boldness he's praying that god would enable them to disobey the government the governing authority this sanhedrin these rulers he's asking god for boldness to disobey these rulers understand that while you stretch out your hand to heal and sign and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus while you fulfill what you promised to do when you poured out your spirit found in Joel and fulfilled there in Acts chapter 2. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. I think that would be an affirmative to their prayer. And we certainly know it is when we read what's next. And continued to speak The word of God with boldness. That word of God is the gospel. And that is in defiance of the governing rulers of the synagogue. The next chapter, after faithfully and boldly proclaiming Christ, they were once again put before the council. And this is what the council said. We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered this, and here is the principle, we must obey God rather than men. So there's the first answer. The very first clear principle and application to this question, is it ever right that we as citizens disobey or not submit ourselves to government authority, this is the principle, we not only may not obey the government, we must not obey or submit to them when they call us to disobey or not submit to God. We, and, that's, and I take that probably, I'm quoting R.C. Sproul, because I remember hearing him sometimes say, we not only may not obey government, we must not when they call us to not submit ourselves to god do you hear that why is that in the context here what what makes that so evident the government derives their authority from god and if they call us to disobey god or not submit ourselves to god they are not fulfilling their office That God's called them to as servants of God. So this is an overarching principle that is always the case. The government only has authority insofar as they do not call on their citizens to do what God has told them not to do or forbid them to do what God has told them to do. And we have examples of this in the Old Testament, don't we? We teach our children from the very first when they're young. These three Hebrew children are to be admired. Why? Because when Nebuchadnezzar and all the rulers of Babylon told them, you bow down before this statue that I made, they said, we're not careful to answer you. O king, we are not, we are not watching our words. We are not going to bow down to that thing. And if God wills, he'll save us. And if not, let it be known, we're still not going to obey you and disobey God. And we say to our children, and we ought to, when they're young, that's right. We obey God rather than men. Now, this is important. This doesn't mean that if the government is merely pagan or secularistic, like ours is secularistic. Now, merely because of that, we do not submit to it. This has to do with direct contradiction, what they are calling upon us to do, Or not to do this principle in fact if if the case was that if a government was merely pagan or secularistic we were not to obey them or submit to them we never would obey or submit to any government since this was founded Paul is writing this while being under the authority of Rome a pagan government yes this was in a time of relative peace for Christians But that would change drastically. And yet Christians didn't find everything they could not do in relationship to Rome. But it was when Rome and Caesar primarily would say, you have to say Caesar is Lord, that the Christians say, no, Caesar is not Lord. Christ is Lord. So we don't look for every opportunity that we can to disobey even a secular or an ungodly government. Peter said in 1 Peter two thirteen through 17, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good for this is the will of God. By doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And as I've already said, Paul himself was saved several times. And uh, Brother Tim texted this to me, in fact, this week as well. If you read Acts 23 through 26, Paul's life himself is saved by the governing rulers of Rome. Those in Jerusalem, his own people wanted to kill Paul. They even intended to ambush him and kill him and come upon him and kill him because it wasn't legal for them to do it in an organized way. So they were going to ambush him and kill him. And it was the governing rulers of Rome that saved his life. In fact, uh, King Agrippa said, had Paul not appealed to Caesar there would have been no way they could have condemned him to death. As it were, though, Paul, in the providence of God, appealed to Caesar, finds his way eventually up to Rome through many ministry opportunities on his way, spreading the gospel all the way, but eventually would come to be killed by Nero, the emperor of Rome. But there is many times in the history of the church... And even in the history of the Old Testament, remember Babylon? Remember who was the second in charge of Babylon, the greatest kingdom of the world at that time, by God's appointment? Daniel. And he disobeyed the king's command. He wouldn't eat what the king had put in front of him. There's questions as to what actually was put in front of him. But we know Daniel obeyed God rather than the king. Daniel, you're not allowed to pray anymore. Remember when Darius was tricked and Daniel's sitting there with his windows wide open praying to God. Throw him in the lion's den. God saved Daniel. And that king threw those evil men into the lion's den and those men were not saved. God could do that today as well as he did it in the past. But Daniel must have been faithful in many aspects of governance even in a sinful government there are difficulties when we come to this matter that we need to pray and ask for as i mentioned john knox said when he was asked how are we supposed to live in light of this this queen mary this bloody insurrection this bloody takeover as it were of the throne of great britain and now our protestant uh, pastors and teachers are being put to death by torturous means and I've read some of that recently and he says how, somebody asked him how are we to go about living in relationship to this and he says by asking God pleading with God for wisdom that's how it wasn't like well just disobey at every turn or every chance you can <laughs> we need to know when it is right to not submit You know what that means? By implication, we need to know God's word. We need to know God's word. If we are ignorant of God's word, every occasion will be an occasion of rebellion and revolution. And then we'll have to be careful because we'll be actually rebelling against God. (laughs) Won't we? So the second answer to the question, are citizens ever right in resisting government? Is resistance to government is valid when governments resist the authority they themselves are under. There are governmental organizations and organized governments that are under authority themselves, that they recognize as an authority over them. In our own tradition, legal tradition, in I believe it's 1312, the Magna Carta was written, and from that, we have a whole series of laws that limit government. The authority of kings and parliaments and constitutions like ours recognize that tradition itself. The second answer is definitely more nuanced than the first, and we actually have to pray for even more wisdom and insight as to how to understand it. But there's here yet a good example in the Old Testament. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 11. Ahaziah is the king of Judah, and he's killed by Jehu and 2 Kings chapter 9, his mother is a wicked queen. She's a wicked woman. The son, actually, of a king of Israel, or the daughter of a king of Israel. And it says that Athaliah destroyed all of the royal family after her son Ahaziah was slain. And you know what that means? This woman, Athaliah, killed her grandchildren, her grandsons. She saw to it that her grandsons were murdered so that she would be queen. But there is one exception. It's found in 2 Kings 11, also in 2 Chronicles 22, but I'll be reading 2 Kings 11. But Jehosheba, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, he was the king that was killed, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death. So that was they were being put to death by their grandmother. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus they hid him from Athaliah so that he was not put to death. And he remained with her six years hidden in the house of the Lord while Athaliah reigned over the land. So Athaliah becomes queen. She's the ruler in Israel. Now we read in verse 4. But in the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and brought the captains of the Karites. Now, these were the green berets, I believe, of the army of Judah and the guards. And they had come to him in the house of the Lord. And he made a covenant with them and put them under oath in the house of the Lord. And he showed them the king's son. Now, go down, down to verse 12. Then he brought out the king's son after they organized everything that was to happen. Then he brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. And they proclaimed him king and anointed him. And they clapped their hands and said, Long live the king! And when Athaliah, the queen, heard the noise of the guard and the people, she went into the house of the Lord to the people. When she looked, there was the king standing by the pillar according to the custom, and the captains and the trumpeters beside the king and all the people of the land rejoiced in blowing trumpets and listen to what she says. She tore her clothes and cried, Treason! Treason! That cry is so familiar in history. (laughs) In very similar settings. So they laid hands on her, and she went through the horse's entrance to the king's house, and there she was put to death. Well, what a mess. Let me tell you something. Government is a mess in this world because of sin. It's messy, and it's awful. But notice that it was Athaliah who was shouting, treason. But then it was her being put to death. Why? Why? Why was she put to death? Why was this treason or revolution indeed justified? In this instance, it's clear that Athaliah, though queen, had won her authority through murder, through the most atrocious evil acts, unlawful devices. And therefore, Joash's enthronement and her overthrow was both revolutionary, it was... She was queen for six years, and it was right. It was right that she was overthrown. Now, we can glean from this that, is it in, that it is indeed permissible to overthrow an unlawful government or a government that rules unlawfully, even by its own standards. And that was indeed the complaints of the American colonists who said King George wasn't upholding his agreement with them. They had the House of Burgesses. That's who their taxes were to be paid for. They were represented by them. But Parliament made a law that they were supposed to pay taxes to Parliament in England to support their war. That they had no representatives that were, that were there, present in England And so they were calling upon the king of England, George, their king, to uphold his law, his rule, and he wouldn't do it. And that was one of the reasons why they said, because you're not keeping with the law of the land, your law, we are not going to be your subjects anymore. You see, this is hairy stuff, right? And it's not easy to determine when it's right and when it's wrong, but I do believe that, biblically speaking, what we just read there means that governments themselves, when they are under constraints of law and righteousness, when they obviously break out from that and cease to uphold the own laws that they abide by, they can be, it is permissible to resist them. Let me say that. It's permissible. It's not necessary always. And that's where wisdom is again to come in. In our own country, if our government would start making laws concerning how we were to organize and meet and worship as a church, saying no longer are you able to preach anything that doesn't accord with the sexual revolution, Equality Act, the New Equality Act, I don't want you saying anything about abortion or that there are no races except for the human race. That doesn't abide by our agenda. The government starts saying, if you start speaking like that, that's hate speech, and you're not allowed to do that anymore. There's not only the first principle, that we obey God rather than men, but there's also the second principle, that they are not abiding by the Constitution that they swear to uphold. So in our country... Everyone that is a ruler, which is in our establishment, the way our government is established, really they are servants of the citizenship. If they start contradicting the Constitution and not upholding it, they're breaking the law of the land. And we may be very much within our rights to resist them. By way of explanation, last year, COVID-19 brought many of these questions to a head in the leadership of this church. And it was my conviction that our government indeed overstepped their authority when they began sometimes mandating the closures of churches, the wearing of masks and social distancing within the assembly, as well as limiting attendance of churches based on emergency powers now when those things first started we recognized the government's intention and the unknowingness of what was going on the ignorance of what was going on and we abided by these mandates as we saw it was relatively universal for everybody in society but as time went on And we saw what was being described as emergency powers rather being a form of authority or a grab of power. It was my conviction that I would not be able to mandate to God's people restraints where I saw the government overstepping the first application as well as the second. That I could tell somebody, you can't come to church if you're not wearing a mask. I didn't find that in scripture, and I didn't see that from what was around us. Yes, we said this was the CDC guidelines, and we left it up to you to make those decisions based off your convictions. May I remind you this morning, we are not meeting in compliance with the mandates. We aren't. Still to this day, why? Now, this is why I, who have responsibility before God in the way that I lead, Kyle has responsibility, came to that conclusion. As soon as it was evident that there was not an emergency transpiring here on Kauai, we had eight weeks last year where there were zero cases, successively, and yet emergency powers were still being used to say, don't meet, wear masks, separate. The government was not then abiding within its own authority, I believe, within the constitution that mandates their leadership, by overstepping it, telling churches how we could meet. Now, you might think, oh, it's a small thing, telling people to wear masks. But when you tell them they cannot worship God, apart from putting something on, or some certain distance that they have to have, we haven't had Sunday school for our children for over a year, in part because of these, which is also on my heart which just bothers me tremendously. You know how many deaths we've had in Kauai? One. One. And that's something to be, prayed, to, to be thankful for. But should we be living as if there was a hurricane hovering over our island or coming this way every moment? Let me say this. If there was a hurricane coming to us, We would not need the government to mandate that we not have a service on Sunday. Historically, this is the way American governance was ordered, that people within it need to be moral and need to be self-governing to love their neighbor as themselves so to restrict their own freedom when they saw the urgency to do so. What we have seen in the last year and a half, I believe, is a government mandating things based off, yes, urgency in some areas, but often just a very flippant pursue and grab of authority that I think we need to be very wary of as we consider ourselves under God first and under this form of government that we live under. Now, this is not easy, because at the same time, I want to tell you, we need to be very honorable towards our leaders, towards our government leaders. And I'll talk about that later. But the second answer is this, namely... Resistance to government is warranted, especially when the government doesn't abide within the boundaries of its own authority. Why is that? Because they are not being the government, they are not submitting to God in their governments. Explicitly, they're not. That's an important thing to consider. Verse 7, go to verse 7. These are the last few applications that we'll consider this morning. It's a pretty quiet group in here. <laughs> You're all. I don't know if I'll be ran out or what. Let, let me say this. All of these things are not easy to come to terms with. We should not come to these to these these convictions whimsically. We shouldn't. We, as I've been saying, we should not be comfortable in rebellion. That is seemingly the opposite for which Paul is writing this. We are very comfortable as Americans, too comfortable often, being rebellious. And I think verse 7 is very helpful to give us the tone. Even if we're going to be disobedient, what is our tone? What is the way in which we do that? First, I want to talk a little bit about taxes. Pay to all who is owed to them. Now, there's the basic principle. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. We learn that taxes enable God's servants, government rulers. Again, that is such a huge title. These are God's servants. Which should be, if, you are a gov- if you're working in government, if you know somebody, tell them you are a servant of God. Maybe they'll serve in a reverential way, in a sober way. We need government leaders to serve, so- serve soberly with a fear of God. But also, we need to remember how God defines them. So this is for them to carry out their calling. Therefore, they must receive payments, taxes. Two subsequent questions come up, though. Is it ever right not to pay taxes? And I say this depends on the first two applications. The first is yes, when taxes are opposed to the law. And this coincides with what we've just considered regarding Parliament of England ascribing a tax on the, the colonists of America, which was against the law of England to do so. And so I think that they were within their rights to refuse to pay their taxes, which brought on of course a war notice there is a consequence still of the refusal there's a consequence still of refusing isn't there absolutely there is the second is should we not pay taxes if our taxes are used for immoral purposes and this is something that I'm very briefly gonna touch on and it's not a simple matter and the first answer is to say that it's difficult to imagine any scenario where taxes would not be used for evil. It's hard to imagine that. Can you imagine those who were subjects to Babylon, Judah, when they paid tribute to Nebuchadnezzar, that that tribute money didn't go to creating that massive idol? (laughs) Of course it did. How about unjust wars? When you're paying tribute to Caesar, which is what Jesus said to do, you are paying money to Caesar to go to war in order to expand his empire. Historically, in the Christian faith, there was the distinction between just and unjust war. Merely the expansion of power to create war, to go and make war just so you can control more of this globe was not a a definition of unjust, of just war. That would be unjust to make war just to expand power. Should you pay towards that? Jesus said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. In that context, Paul is saying this, while Rome is, when he speaks of taxes, he's speaking of tribute, which is, taxes especially being paid to those who are over your government so rome was over israel over the jews they were paying tribute taxes to caesar and it's impossible to imagine that caesar wasn't using them for evil ends so i think the first answer to the question is if the government used taxes for immoral ends should we still pay them. According to the context, I don't see any way around not paying our taxes, even if they use it for evil ends. But remember this, that governments themselves, as we read in Isaiah 40 in the responsive reading, is a drop in the bucket. And God will tear a wicked government down. He will destroy wicked governments. They are culpable for what they do with your money you give to them. When you obey God and you pay your taxes, giving it to them, they are under God's authority to do right with those taxes. Now that comes home to us, because your tax money might go to the creation of a a new bathroom in your elementary school that's for non-binary children. Your taxes will go, in fact, in our educational system to the teaching of those children that if this young man wants to be a girl, that's totally cool. And in fact, it's good. Your money already does that. God help us. Now, There's so much that goes on here. We live in a society where we can fight those taxes. We can fight to change those taxes. And we should. Where we should pray that God would remove those evil people in government using and ascribing our tax dollars to those ends. And the same goes for unjust wars. We should be praying. We should be pursuing. We should be We should be voting to the end that these kind of evil uses of our money will not be promoted. Pretty soon, this, as I mentioned already, our current presidential administration wants to make your tax dollars go towards abortion on demand. So we will be paying taxes to a government that will be giving women Free opportunities, free procedures to kill a life within them, to murder. That's going to happen if this president gets his way and his administration gets his way. Now, if a Christian decides, I'm not paying taxes anymore. There is a matter of conscience, perhaps, there. But I would say, according to what we are learning here, render to Caesar what's Caesar's. And God will bring justice upon Caesar. I I don't see any way around it, to be honest. I don't want to pay taxes so a child can be murdered. I don't want to pay taxes for a child to be confused by ungodly ideals. It's already been happening for 40 years in this country, 50 years. I don't want to pay taxes for governments to do evil with, but they will do evil with our taxes. Another question. You guys are probably sick of this, but we need this, and this is the last sermon on this, so we're going for it. Are high taxes warranted? You're hitting on all the hard points here. Two principles here. Sometimes high taxes may be warranted. Wartime. When the government is fulfilling this duty to, to do good to those who are doing good and to be a terror to those who do evil when they're protecting its citizens, there may be the need for taxes to be high. Within the context of this chapter, low taxes are not necessarily a right that I see anywhere, essentially, in Scripture. However... In this text, as I've been arguing, there does seem to be a limitation of government. And if government isn't a big fat pig, it won't demand so much money from its citizens. That wasn't a very uh, respectful way way to talk about that. But uh, you get the idea that if government is limited in its scope of how it exercises its authority, then it won't need as much money in order to carry out its authority, its governing. So there is an implied limitation of taxes the way that governments could be limited here within the text. That's all I'm going to say on that. I don't have every answer there. The final application comes, though, I, and I want to I key in on this, and then actually there's two more applications. <laughs> it's, the, it's the last phrase, Uh, uh, two phrases here of verse 7 respect to whom respect is owed honor to whom honor is owed now this is an important biblical application namely that those to whom god has given authority over us in government ought to be both respected and honored respected can be taken as fear reverenced honored, you show them that they are valuable. Now, I believe this honor is not just like honor everyone, which we'll see Peter say again, 1 Peter 2, seven, honor everyone. I think he means here that there is a certain quality of honor to be given to those who are in government charge. They are servants of God, he calls them in this text. That means when you see a government leader, you shouldn't go and spit on them, That shouldn't be your first inclinations. Now, let me just give you my full disclosure. There are times when I do not want to honor our government leaders. When I don't. How do we weigh that out? When when I see government leaders not only contradicting Scripture but promoting and celebrating and encouraging sin, which will kill and tear down and destroy and leave everything to despair. Sin, that's what sin does. It's pleasurable for a season. We're in that, maybe it's pleasurable for a season. I don't even think we're there anymore. But it will kill and destroy. And this country will come to nothing if we keep this going. And when I hear government leaders promoting that, Honor is not welling up with me, within in me, within me. And so when we're thinking about this, we don't think about this honor towards the man or the woman, do we? There's no way we can think about that. That idiot in office, we might think to ourselves, I'm supposed to honor him. No, it's that servant of God. God ordains, God ordains every base ruler as well. Isn't that what Nebuchadnezzar said? What did he say? The basis of men whom God puts in authority. It's not the man, it's the office that we need to be careful to honor. And I think we all need probably a bit of repentance in that regard. Are you praying that's one way you'll know if you're honoring them. Are you praying for them? First Timothy 2. Pray for everyone in authority. For kings, governors, in our day and age, senators, representatives. Pray for them. Judges. Are we praying? This is one way we, we show honor and respect. And the re- reason we give honor remember he says give to all those what is due them the reason it is due to them is not because they demand it in and of themselves they're intelligent they've got it all together they are men they will die like men the psalmist says every one of them but it's because god has established government it's because they are his servants We need to pray that they act like it. This is the last application. This is it. Our relationship to God through Christ defines, listen this, our relationship to God through Christ defines the way we relate to government. Our relationship to God through Christ defines the way we relate to government. Our heavenly citizenship ought to make out of Christians the best earthly citizens. Now that accords with the whole argument that I made back in chapter 12. We ought to be the best and most moral people on the the earth because, why, of the mercies of God, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Because of the mercies of God. And this is within that context. But more than that, I can bring you to Titus. Go to Titus chapter 3. This is where we'll close. Titus chapter 3. Notice the argument here. Notice the teaching here. He he goes from our responsibility to government. And why we uphold that responsibility? It's because of our position in Christ. Because we are redeemed. Titus 3, 1 and 2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. To be obedient, to be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling. To be gentle. And to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Why? Verse 3, 4, there's that connection. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. How did we do that? We did that first against God and then against each other. That used to be the temper or the pattern of our lives. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So here it is. It's because we are heirs of the hope of eternal life that we are called not to live in a way that upends those whom God has put over us. That's the principle here. Christians should be the best citizens on this earth because we are heavenly citizens already. May God teach us that principle. Even as we go about applying these others in this very difficult day. Let's pray. Our Father, sin has corrupted so many things. Everything is out of whack. Hills and mountains, the pathways are crooked. But the word of God, which abide forever, that was spoke through John the Baptist, to prepare the way of the Lord was to make his path straight. And that word has come to us. That word which teaches us of the name which is above every name. It teaches us of your only son who became like us. And who became our prop- propitiation for us. Who in his death your wrath was poured out upon him in our place. And in his life, we have life who trust in him. Lord, because of that, we are called to live in a way that is above the world, a way that exemplifies the hope that is within us, that we are already right now citizens of heaven, co-heirs with Christ Lord, that we were seated there now, Colossians 3 says. So therefore, we ought to live heavenly lives now on this earth. And then we ought to see how we ought to live before you in relationship to governments on this earth. And man, we need wisdom to do so. We need understanding. We need to be sanctified to do so. We don't wish to be a rebellious people. We don't wish to be unlawful citizens. We desire to do what's right. We desire to trust you in this life and the life to come. And so we pray for wisdom. We pray for understanding. We pray for knowledge of your word. Thank you for it, for teaching us these things and helping us to know how to apply them in a sinful and perverse generation. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.